Hello, people of the way. If you have your Bible, please open up to Romans chapter 11. I am over the top excited that we've got to chapter 11 because you have to remember this theme. Anytime somebody mentions Romans 11 or Romans 10, Romans 9, Romans 8, and even Romans 7, and they come up with certain theories about predestination. They come up with certain theories about uh, the doctrine of uh, election. Always remember that this theme, it's Romans 7 through 11, and it culminates in chapter 11, and everything hinges on belief. It's very important to understand. If you're listening to this message for the first time, I strongly recommend, I mean, you can st still listen, <laughs> but listen to ch our study in chapter 7, chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11, because this is the culmination of this theme. And it all hinges on belief. I like to think of Romans 7 through 11 like white, white water rafting. White water rafting. That's how I like to think of Romans 7 through 11, because you can go through Romans 7 through 11 and, you know, if, it's, if you consider it as whitewater rafting, we could have loads of fun. It could be super, super, super duper fun. But there's also an element of danger. And not to imply that the Word of God is dangerous because there's safety in the Word of God. But don't forget that the Word is a double-edged sword. It's two two-sided sword. And a lot of times, you know, when you consider this idea of white water rafting, when you, if you don't know what you're doing, it can be dangerous, white water rafting. It can be very dangerous. You know, your raft can turn upside down. You, you know, all, all kinds of things can happen. But, you know, if you are in a good boat, if you are directed properly, if you understand Old Testament and New Testament, you can get a deep, deep, deep understanding of what the Lord has done, is doing, and will do. And that's why Romans 7 through 11 is a beautiful, beautiful theme. Beautiful theme. And what blows me away so much is how good God is. Because he makes it easy. Belief. Remember, belief. I say everything hinges on belief, and we're going to see that here in chapter 11. But belief, it's, it's like baby steps. Because you believe, and it's like, wow, Lord, you know, you're so beautiful. And yes, I will marry you. Yes, I desire to have, you know, fellowship and oneness and closeness and intimacy with you, Lord. And you make a choice to abide in him and he in you, and then something else happens. It evokes something deeper, something called obedience to his word. You learn to trust him. You learn to trust his ways over your own ways. And sometimes that takes a long time to learn. Sometimes you can learn it super quick. I mean, look at 11 days became 40 years. Don't forget that. Hearken to our studies in the book of Numbers. And so when I say that this theme of Romans 7 through 11 can be dangerous, it's not dangerous in terms of being, you know, we have safety in the word of God. 
but it's dangerous in terms of what people have turned it into because they create all kinds of crazy doctrines. They create all kinds of replacement theology. They create classic dispensationalism, a replacement theology, covenant theology, dual covenant theology, progressive dispensationalism, new covenant theology, covenant premillennialism, supersessionism. And, you know, it's, it's, it's too much. And not that it's too much. It's, it goes beyond what the Bible teaches. And so look what happens here in chapter 11, verse 1. He says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not, exclamation point. Don't forget that. Because you remember in chapter 9, verse 2, Paul is explaining his heart. You see a little bit of his heart. And you also see that when you study the book of Acts. Because in the book of Acts, you see how his heart's desire was always to go to the synagogue. Always to go to the synagogue. You know, he'd get kicked out of one synagogue, beaten out of one town. And then, you know, he'd go to the next town. And you think like, okay, he's not going stepping foot in the synagogue. Where does he go? The synagogue. Where does he go? The temple. Why? Because his love for the Jews. Look at chapter 9, verse 2. He says, I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. You see, that's his desire for them to be saved. That's his desire for them to know Jesus Christ and have a relationship with him. But he doesn't end there. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. He says, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, Israel is that they may be saved. You see a little picture of his heart. That's what I love so much about his letters because you see his works in the book of Acts. But then you see these letters that he's writing to the church. He's just pouring his guts out, pouring his heart out to a people he loves, the church. But then he makes mention of Israel. And what's so beautiful, you look at, you know, if you remember our studies in Romans 8 and Romans 9. And, you know, what I love so much about Romans 10 is that it places places the the impetus on the messenger who is the messenger because in verse 13 in verse 13 of chapter 10 for whoever calls on the name of the lord shall be saved and you read that and you're like wow cool that's awesome but then you think well, what about the non-believers i mean if the bible says whoever calls on the name of the lord shall be saved what about those who don't believe in verse 14 he kind of you know brings it home by saying, hey, it's the messenger. It's the messenger. He says in verse 14, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? You see, who is the preacher? Who is the one who is the heralding, heralding and proclaiming Jesus Christ? In verse 15, and how shall they preach unless they are sent? You see, obedience, obedience. How beautiful in verse 15, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. In verse 17, still in chapter 10, he says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's how it happens. That's how faith happens. 
So you read verse 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What about the non-believers? Well, where is the word being preached? Where is the word being taught? Remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16. It is the, the gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. It's the power of God. It's not, you don't have to be some kind of like, you know, you know, you, you, you hear people say, oh yeah, he's a very good orator. He's very good with people. He's, a, he's like, who cares? It's the power of God to salvation. The power of God to salvation. Look at, you know, all the, you know, everybody says, oh yeah, this guy's a great orator. You should be a preacher. Well, you know, is it the Lord's will or is it man's will? We have to be very careful when it comes to that. Because we do the will of the Father and nobody else. The will of the Lord in my life, in your life, and all who believe. You say, wait a second, how do I know the will of the Father? You know what I say? Wait. Be patient. Because he will reveal to you in his time. Maybe he wants you to learn. I mean, he does want you to learn, but maybe he wants you to learn more and more and more and more and more and more and more. Because as the days get darker and darker and darker, more wicked, 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 we have to know our Bibles. The church has to know the Bible, the Word of God. And not knowledge for the sake of knowledge, but what about the application? And not just the application, what about the overflowing of new wine in new wineskins? And so look what happens here. So he says, has God cast, in, in, now in chapter 11, verse 1, has God cast away his people? Certainly not, exclamation point, for I also, I also, remember, Paul's a Jew. For I also am an Israelite. Wow. And so you, wait a second, Paul believes? So it's like, has God cast away his people? And Paul's like, what are you, uh, I, I'm a Jew, I believe. So no, he hasn't cast away Israel. And he says, I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham. Remember, the seed of Abraham, and it's not just Abraham and all his kids, but this seed, it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We studied that a couple chapters ago. But then he also says of the tribe of Benjamin. In verse 2, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Remember our study in chapter 8. And sometimes, you know, when you, when you consider these studies, always remember 7 through 11, Romans 7 through 11. That's a, that's a big deal. It's huge. And I say that, I say that because crazy doctrines, false doctrines have been established from Romans 7 alone and Roman, Romans 8 alone. And Romans 9 alone. Crazy, crazy doctrines. And, and more so with Romans 9. Sometimes with Romans 11. That's why I say 7 through 11. That's, there's safety in 7 through 11. Because you see a beautiful theme. A beautiful theme. And you know what I love so much about Paul? He's pouring into this young church in Rome. He, it's, they're not like academics. There might be some academics in the church in Rome. 
but they're not like, you know, all these brainiacs, you know, philosophers and, you know, a master's degree in theology. It's just for the plain Joe and the plain Jane. And if there's some scholars in there, it's for the scholars too. It's for everybody. And let this be an, of encouragement to you because what I find in the religious elitism, in the religious establishment of today, is that there is that elitist mentality where, you know, I mean, like if you ever talk to a, uh, uh, like a college professor, university professor, that's say like a, an economist, and supposedly this guy knows what he's talking about. This guy knows the economy. This guy knows the ins and outs of the economy. And then you ask him about his stock portfolio and he's broke. Uh, man, you know, you, you put your money where your mouth is. You know, you think you know the economy, but you know, proof is in the pudding. You know, and I don't want to put this into a dollars and cents kind of thing. But a lot of times in the elitist class, they kind of look down on the so-called uneducated. Just like they did with Peter. Remember the religious establishment with Peter? Like, who, who is this guy? Peter was like, like uh, teaching and preaching and like deep spiritual things. Who is this guy they were saying? This, this is a fisherman. What does he know? He didn't go to synagogue with us. He didn't go to, you know, he didn't learn like we did. What does he know? And then they perceive, they remember that he walked with Jesus. A relationship with Jesus Christ. A time of study in his word. And the word became flesh. You have intimacy with him. Old Testament and New Testament. And you learn these things. And the Holy Spirit teaches you. You learn discernment. And so when I say like, you know, people get into crazy town because they focus on Romans 9 and Romans 9 alone and then they go off into crazy town. Or they focus on Romans 8 and Romans 8 alone and then they go off into crazy town. You might know some crazy town people. There's a lot of them. And, you know, for my reformed uh, friends, for my Calvinistic friends, uh, I love you. But, you know, certain theologies are straight up crazy town. You know, it's to say, come out of her, my people, and walk with Jesus Christ. You know, the Lord saved me from Catholicism. You know what that required? A complete and total denial of Roman Catholicism. Complete and total denial. Not to come out of Rome and then all of a sudden say, oh, you know what? Yeah, I'm still going to pray to Mary. No, that's what, the, that's what the believing Pharisees did. Remember in our study in the, in the book of Acts, there were some uh, former Pharisees who became Christians and they were believers in the church, in the early church. But then what happened? They took it upon themselves and they started teaching the law and saying, if you want to be a Christian, you got to be circumcised. I mean, put yourself in the Gentile shoes. If you're like, well, wait a second, I, you know, I'm not circumcised, but, you know, I love Jesus Christ. And if I want to be a Christian, I have to be circumcised. It's like, wait a second, what's going on here? Confusion, division in the church. You know, certain doctrines, certain teachings that do not align with scripture. When that happens, you have to walk away. You have to walk away. You have to deny those things. And I say that as a former Catholic. Why? 
Because our relationship is with Jesus Christ. Our relationship is not with the church organization. Our relationship is not with a brand of theology. Our relationship is with Jesus Christ. He is the bridegroom. A doctrine of theology is not the bridegroom. They might think they are, but they're not. So you have a choice to make. That's why Romans 7 through 11, it's an entirety. It's a theme. And so look at what he says here in verse 2. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Against Israel. Not for Israel. Against Israel. Saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. And Paul is saying, do you not read? Or have you not read? Don't you know the scripture, what the scripture says of Elijah, he says? Now what happened at that moment in time, all of Israel, you know, seemingly to Elijah, they, they all went off into crazy town. They all started to believe other things. They started to take in other gods. They, start, they were in, uh, they, they turned their back on the Lord. You know what I love so much about Elijah is that he thought he was alone. And I'm not, you know, sometimes being alone, I'm kind of a loner. I like being, you know, I'm kind of, you know, I don't, I like being alone because when I'm alone, I'm not really alone. I'm with the Lord. But I know the Lord says, you know, go and, you know, be a fisherman. So you got to be with the people. But, you know, if I had to be alone, I wouldn't mind. I'm a loner. Okay. But look what happens here. Uh, Elijah, you know, godly people in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, male, female, young, old, very often they stand alone. And I say that because you might feel somewhat ostracized because of your walk with Jesus Christ. People might call you crazy, stupid. They call you a legalist. Oh, you're going too far with Jesus. You're going too far with religion. They don't even, they don't have a relationship with Jesus. So it's, oh, you're going too far with religion. No, go, go as far as you can with Jesus Christ. Remember, we're going so far, we're going to paradise. We're going to Zion. So, you know, go as far as you can with Jesus Christ. You know, as you commit your life to him, deeper and deeper, you fall in love with him more and more and more and deeper and deeper and deeper. Then you're starting to realize, you're, you're going to realize, man, this, this world isn't my home. You start to look forward to paradise. You start to look forward to eternity with Jesus Christ. And yes, you start to look forward to your death. Because death has no sting. It's just a doorway. It's just a passageway into eternity. And so Elijah, he thought he was all by himself. But then verse 4, but what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You see, there's no idolatry in Israel. That's in Elijah's case. In Elijah's time, Elijah thought he was alone. And the Lord told him, Elijah, there's 7,000 men who haven't bowed the knee. To Baal, to Baal, if you remember our study on Wednesday, Baal. No idolatry, Baal. In verse 5, even so then, at this present time, this is under the new covenant. But he says, even so, at this present time, 
there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Very interesting. Very interesting. So I think it's so beautiful for us to consider, not just to consider, but to remember that for Elijah, he thought he was alone, but he wasn't alone because there were all these people who have not bowed the knee to Baal, no idolatry. And what does that mean? Even when it's popular, even when the populace, the majority of people were bowing the knee to Baal, you have a certain number of people that didn't. And let that be a great encouragement to you. Because you might go to church, you might be in a fellowship, and nobody wants to talk about the Bible. Nobody wants to talk about the Lord, the work of His hands. Nobody wants to talk. They want to talk about sports. They want to talk about work. They want to talk about business. They want to talk about stocks. They want to talk about all kinds of different things, politics. But you're in fellowship with people, and it's like, man, who wants to? Is it, does anybody here want to talk about the Lord? Anybody want to pray? You know, and, and you kind of feel like, man, you know, it, it, alone. Be of good cheer because you're in good company. Old Testament and New Testament from this great cloud of witnesses. You know, you're in uh, fellowship with people and they want to talk about the latest shows, the latest TV shows, you know, celebrity gossip. Oh, did you hear about this? Did you hear about this? Yeah, who is that guy? Who is this girl? I don't care. You know, I don't care about this. Every, everyone wants to talk about all these different things. It's like, where, where's the Lord in all this? Where's the Lord? And so look what happens here. You know, what, what Paul is saying, even at this present time, remember, new covenant. New covenant. The church in Rome, made up of Jew and Gentile. Believers in Jesus Christ. There is a remnant according to the election of grace. So whenever we see the remnant in the Old Testament, don't forget that there's also a, re a remnant according to grace. A remnant according to the new covenant. And, you know, when you understand this concept of a remnant, I like to think of the remnant as like the hardcore believers, you know? I mean, not to sound like prideful in saying that, but, you know, like you look at Judah, but then you look at Jeremiah, you know? It's like, yes, it's Judah, but then like Jeremiah is hardcore. Or you look at uh, uh, Israel, and yes, that's beautiful, but then Isaiah, it's like, whoa, you know, it's hardcore. Or Amos, or Joel, or Zephaniah, or even Ruth, Hannah. You see, all these beautiful people, male, female, young and old, little Samuel. It's like, wow, Eli's the high priest. Wow, that's so cool. But then you look at his walk and you're like, wait a second, that's not so cool. And there was no widespread revelation from the Lord in those days, except who did the Lord speak to? Little Samuel. Little, little Samuel. That's what I'm talking about. And so, you know, you have like in the entirety of, you know, the church, you have a remnant. This election of grace, according to the election of grace. He says this in verse 6, and if by grace, remember, you know, when I say hardcore, remember the parable of the 10 virgins? So you have 10 virgins, Matthew 25. 10 virgins. All are virgins. Wow, praise the Lord. All are waiting for the bridegroom. 
Praise the Lord. All have lamps. Praise the Lord. All have oil for their lamps. Wow. Praise the Lord. The bridegroom is coming and they go and they leave to meet the bridegroom. Wow. Praise the Lord. Except something happens. Five of them run out of oil. Five had plenty of oil. Five ran out. What does that say to you and to me? Hey, don't run out of oil. That's what it says to me and that's what I say to you. Don't run out of oil. Make sure that you're storing plenty of oil for your lamps. Because remember, the rest- he who restrains will be removed. But who are the ones that have plenty of oil for their lamps? You see how the Bible speaks? The word of God speaks loud and clear. And so look what happens here in verse 6. And if by grace, then it is no longer works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. I like to think of grace as an acronym. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. Now, I have to say something here. Some Bible uh, versions, they end right here. In in, in verse 6. It just goes on to verse 7 from right here. Where it says, otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So... You might have heard me say that I'm more of a, 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 a Textus Receptus kind of guy. And let me explain that. In the early church, you know, you, 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 we have these letters, you know, like, for example, like, so Paul's in prison. Okay, Paul's in prison. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he starts penning these letters. He's going to write a letter to the church in Rome. So he writes a letter to the church in Rome. He, you know, say so he, he's in house arrest. So he gives it to a person and the person runs it to the church. And he gets to the church and says, hey, we got a letter from Paul. And so somebody would read it and, you know, they'd read it and you know, it'd be like they just have like the letter to the church in Rome. That's what they had. And they would read it and be edified by this letter. But then what they would also do is, you know, the pastor or the elder, they would study it and then they would teach it. It would be their doctrine. And then what they would do is they would reproduce it. They'd give the document to somebody and they'd say, here, copy this multiple times over and over and over. And here, run it to this other church. Run it over here to this other church. And that's what they did with these letters, the the gospels, the epistles. And they wrote all these things. And that's how the church started to spread. Churches started to grow. And they had like, they had their church where they gathered. But whoever was the pastor, sometimes it was the elders, they would carry like a little satchel and they'd have all these parchments with them. You know, the letter to the church in Rome. You know, the letter to the church in Corinth. And you might not even live in Corinth, but it was a letter to the church in Corinth that has been reproduced and copied. And, you know, and, and, and been distributed for the edification of the saints, for the equipping, for the work of the ministry. So that's what happened in the early church. This is like very early. I meant like, you know, thousands of years ago. Well, like 2,000 years ago. Well, you know, like turn of the century or the, the, the uh, two millennia ago. So this is like very, very early church as the church is growing. And so, just so you know, the Bibles that we have today, there's several, that's how the, the, the parchments started to spread. It was, you know, the Greek translation. 
And so what happened is that it, 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 the types of translations that we have today, there's word for word, there's thought for thought, and there's paraphrase. I've read Bibles in all of those categories. And I've read paraphrase Bibles, I've read the thought for thought Bibles, and I've read the word for word Bibles. And the word for word Bible, those are the better ones. Those are the better ones because they're based on these original manuscripts. The ones that are, you know, were written on parchment, you know, they were distributed to the church. They're based on those original manuscripts. And if you're not there, if you're not reading a word for word Bible, my strong recommendation is that you get there. In the course of time, you get there. Me personally, in my own walk with the Lord, I started, I had a Bible, but I didn't understand it. And so I read it. I didn't even read it like a paraphrased Bible. I read a comic book Bible. And I read a comic book Bible and it, 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 I was thirsty. It gave me, I was so thirsty. I love the comic book Bible, you know, for, you know, my state of, I don't, you know, I was, I was probably like a little embryo, you know, my embryonic stage in growth. And I love the, I love that comic book Bible that I read. It's not even a paraphrased Bible. It's the comic book Bible. And then I moved to a different paraphrased Bible, you know, the New Living Translation, read that and I wanted more. And then all of a sudden I started to read the NIV and I wanted more. And then I wanted, then I studied from the uh, uh, ESV and I wanted more. Then I started to get into the New King James and the King James. And even, you know, there's, I'm going to explain this a little bit, but I want to give you the, the process of the translations that we have today. And there's a reason I'll explain that. And so that's what happened as, as these parchments were spread in the early church. That's what's, that's what happened. And that's how it happened. But while these early manuscripts were being used, there was another version that was put into place. And that is the Latin Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate. And that was used around it by the, by the Roman Catholic Church around 400 AD. And, <clears throat> and this also led to the Dewey Rhymes. I mean, it, <clears throat> if you understand all the, the texts of the Bible, this also led to the Dewey Rhymes text. But I'll give you a little opinion of mine. The decline of Rome. This is my opinion. And I have to stress it's my opinion. But in my opinion... The decline of Rome coincides with this particular time period and the beginning of the Dark Ages. In my opinion, it's judgment for Christian persecution because you look at the early church and how they were persecuted by the Roman Catholics. And this entrance of the Dark Ages, that's that's just my opinion. Do you remember when we were studying in the book of in, in the Gospels and entrance into the uh, 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 the book of Acts and how I mentioned a, an opinion I have about Pompeii, how when uh, um, uh, seventy A.D. when the temple was destroyed and all the the the, uh, the gold and everything was taken into to Rome and then they used those proceeds to build this the uh, the Colosseum. And the Colosseum was built, but they, and they used the pros, and they even have signs outside the Colosseum, like, you know, from the spoils of war. The war that they had was the destruction of the temple. But then, you know, the Vesuvius blew up, the Mount Vesuvius, it erupted, and Pompeii was destroyed. That happened in 79 AD. And then I expressed my opinion there too. I said, in my opinion, I think that's God's judgment for the temple spoils. 
That's God judge, God's judgment. That's that's just my opinion. So when I say the dark ages, I think it's God's judge, judgment. That's my opinion. And, you know, the uh, Mount Vesuvius destroying Pompeii, I also think that's God's judgment for the temple spoils on, on Rome. So post-dark ages, what happened is this Latin Vulgate was heavily abused and misused by the Roman Catholic Church. And what happened is that certain learned men, some of them were priests, some of them were friars, some of them were scholars, they left the Roman Catholic Church. Among these people are Erasmus, Tyndale, Luther, Coverdale, Knox, and Calvin, John Calvin. And this is what's called the Reformation. People ascribe the Reformation to John Calvin, or people ascribe the Reformation to Luther, but it's really a movement that began with more people. And these learned men, they understood that, wait a second, the Roman Catholic Church, they're, they're crazy. They're not even teaching sound doctrine because somebody would, you know, love the Lord and what they knew of the Lord. But then as they started to have knowledge, maybe they grew up from an aristocracy. They were wealthy. They came from a rich family. And this rich family could afford to send them to school. Because in that era, the majority of people were unlearned, you know, academically. So only the wealthy people could go to school. So a wealthy family, they would send their son to school. And then, you know, they would learn different languages. And so they would say, oh, I want to serve the Lord. So I'm going to join the, the Catholic Church. And then all of a sudden they start reading back. Wait a second. This is crazy. This like, what? The, the, they're saying that they're saying that this priest is saying this, but the Bible doesn't say that. And then it caused this reformation. That's in accordance with the Latin Vulgate, this, this abuse uh, and misuse of the Latin Vulgate. And so what happened now, when I say uh, this reformation, I'll give my opinion on this reformation. Martin Luther, he could have gone further. He had a heavy focus on the New Testament. He could have gone further into the Old Testament, in my opinion, because a lot of what his later works were very anti-Semitic. I don't like that. Coverdale, Knox, and even John Calvin, they it worked, their works led to the Geneva Bible, which was also used in Geneva, which also led to the Protestant Pope, John Calvin. So it was kind of, kind of like a reproduction of what happened with Rome. You know, you just... You read the history books about what happened in Geneva. It's not Christ-like. Look at the deaths that occurred in Geneva. Me personally, I prefer the works of Tyndale and Erasmus. Tyndale being English, Tyndale translating into English, and Erasmus whose works led to the King James Bible. Now, Erasmus, what Erasmus did is he gathered these ancient Greek manuscripts, the original manuscripts, to compare them with the Latin Vulgate. And then all of a sudden, what happened based on these works, they discovered, wow, these guys are crazy. They're not even teaching the Bible. They're off in crazy town. And so his works led to what's called the received text. That's why it's called the Textus Receptus, the received text. And this Textus Receptus is what Tyndale used to translate into English. It's also what Martin Luther used to translate into German. This is a little, little church history. If you, I, mean, you, I mean, we talk about these, you know, the letter to the church in Rome, the letter to the church in Corinth, and we're understanding the translations through the, through the centuries. 
And when I say I'm more of a Textus Receptus kind of guy, it's because I want to be as close as possible to the original manuscripts. Now, the Textus Receptus, it was later used and the model of putting it together, it was also used for a deeper work of the Old Testament and New Testament based on ancient manuscripts that are Greek, Aramaic, Hebrew, and this work is called the Authorized Version. It's also called the King James Version. And it's called the King James Version because King James, he bankrolled. It's kind of like a government-sanctioned work. The, these deep, 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 heavy works were government-funded by King James. He's kind of almost like a Cyrus-like of person. Very Cyrus-like when you consider the, the funding. Just think of like... Uh, uh, like Say you want to be like a, a, a scientist, you want to you know, get into space, you want to join the space race, and you're super smart, you're super ambitious, you can do it, you want to do it, you have a team of people, you can do it, but you're broke, everybody's poor, you know? And so you go to a rich guy, you go to the investors, you know, you go to a group of pool of rich people and you say, hey, look, we, got, we want to do this. They look at your history, they look at your academics, they kind of, you know, give me your business plan, they say, okay, we'll bankroll you. Go, go for it. You know, here's your here's your your seed money and, you know, go out and, you know, build your rockets, do whatever. And that's what happened with King uh, uh, King James. And he's very Cyrus like. Remember uh, Nehemiah when, you know, he was like, you know, the Jerusalem is destroyed. And the king was like, go, you know, go build. Oh, by the way, I'm going to bankroll it. I'm going to fund it. You see? That's why I say he's very Cyrus-like. Now, what happened, These uh, the, the, the timeline of translations, the oldest is based in the Textus Receptus, the oldest. And then after that came the Byzantine text. And then around the 1800s came the Alexandrian text, which as you get closer to today, they become more liberalized and homogenized. That's the Alexandrian text. That's around the 1800s. The Alexandrian texts include the ESV, uh, the, uh, uh, and then, you know, the, the, these works also lead to further homogenized texts, such as the NLT, the New Living Translation. You know, not to exclude the, the, the NIV, the, 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 uh, 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 um, the NIV. I, I was, I, sometimes I refer to the NIV as the non-inspired version. Because it's translations of translations of translations or translation of a thought. They put thought processes into play. Or you get into Bibles like the message. And that's, I don't even refer to that as paraphrase. I, I don't even like the message. I say that's dangerous. I don't like the message. That's just, I mean, I'm just throwing my opinion here. But there's a reason behind it. I'll explain that. And so as you get closer to today, you're, you get more homogenized text more liberalized texts, which were fitting for that period of time. And just so you know, I'm not a King James only person. There are some people who are hardcore King James, King James only. I'm not that. I'm not. I like the Textus Receptus because it's the received text, because it's closer to the original manuscripts, the, the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome, to the church in Corinth, to the church in Galatia, Peter's letter, the letter of Jude closer it's closer to the original manuscripts that's my preference 
And that's what I teach because there's safety in that. That's why when we study, when I teach, it's from the New King James Version. And so I'm not a King James only person. And if you happen to be a King James only person, don't forget that, you know, we just studied this in Numbers 3. That Numbers 3 uses Septuagint math. Don't forget. It's very important to understand. You know, and even sometimes, you know, you hear me mention a little beef I have with the New King James translations. Sometimes I mention, you know, I wish the translators put it like this because the Greek puts it like this and the way it has it here, it's just a little different. And some, I'll say that. My comment about very modern translations with later copyright dates, popular online versions even, I don't recommend. I don't recommend. I mean, whenever if I had if I was in the market for a new Bible, I kind of lean towards the New King James. I'll probably stick with the New King James. But then I look at the copyright date. I look at the copyright date because what's happening now with publishing companies is they liberalize them. You know, they 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 turn, you know, he is turned into she, male references become unisex. The authority role is diminished or becomes foggy. Even like the Bible app. I have a Bible app on my phone. And I just did a recent update. And I updated it and I opened it up. And then you have all these false teachers in there. You know, we have to be very careful with these Bibles that we choose. And, you know, remember, you know, my journey into understanding the Bible, it began with a comic book Bible. So, I, you know, I'm not like overly like, oh, you're evil if you read this. I'm not saying that. But no matter where you are in your growth with the Lord, try to get yourself to a, a text that closely matches the original manuscripts. A lot of people today, they read from the ESV. I'm not a fan of the ESV. I call it the Calvinist Bible. Because when you talk to Reformed people, you talk to Calvinists, nine times out of ten, they read and they study from the ESV I don't like that. I don't recommend that, especially for the academics, for the uh, theologians. I don't recommend the ESV because there are omissions in the ESV. That was around 1800. That's, 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 uh, uh, um, uh, that's, it's, there's deviation from, because it's Alexandrian text around the 1800s. It's not Textus Receptus. It's not even Byzantine text. You see, so there's deviations in the ESV. I know a lot of people say, oh, ESV is the best. ESV is the best. You know why they say that? Because their Calvinistic teachers say ESV is the best. But it's, it's, it's a later work. It's from the 1800s. It's Alexandrian text, which further, it's further away from the original manuscripts. My suggestion is to get as close as you possibly can to the original manuscripts. If you study Aramaic, if you study Greek, if you study Hebrew and you understand those languages, you know, go to those texts because that's like you're going right to the source. For the most part, I read out of King James and New King James just because this text, this Receptus has this closer alignment to these original manuscripts. The, based on the works of Erasmus, which later led to the King James Bible. And it's all part and parcel of the Reformation. When people started to get into crazy town. They were already into crazy town, doctrinally speaking. Doctrinally speaking, the Roman Catholic Church. Except there were no learned people to say like, hey, what, what in the world's happening here? And that's why I say, you know, in my opinion, I have to stress, this is my opinion. 
that the dark ages was judgment. Kind of like the lights out, you know, the dark ages, the lights out. Why? Because look at the Christian persecution. Look at what they did to the church. Look at what they did to Christians. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's a free, uh, if you have ebooks on, you know, Amazon or Apple, you know, uh, 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 Kindle, I think they're called. But if you have an ebook reader, uh, sometimes you can get Fox's Book of Martyrs for free. Or it's like 99 cents. But if you read that, you'll cry. You'll turn, every single page, you'll cry. Because you read about what, what they did to Christians. What they did to the Anabaptists. What they did to um, uh, Waldensians. You know, these are churches which read the original manuscripts. Documents that were closely aligned with the original manuscripts. And so that's what you see in, in church history. That's what happened with these letters. Somebody say, hey, we got a letter from Paul. And they'd read it, study it. The pastor, the elder, they would teach it. And then, you know, at the same time, they're getting other documents. Hey, this is a copy of what Paul sent to Corinth. And so they'd read it and, you know, understand it. And then the pastor, the elders, they would study it. And then they would teach it to the church. So it was kind of like piecemeal putting it together. And it's like all these copies, okay, you, you know, we got this letter from the church in Corinth, you, you know, you team of guys, you know, you start writing this down and you, you make copies. And then let me know when you have the copies done, when they're done, because we're going to have a runner and we're going to run it to the next church, you know, the next, the church, you know, the next town over. And that's how the word of God spread. And I say, like, wow, that's kind of a long, you know, I want you to have this understanding of church history, early church history. Because what happens here in verse 6, and if by grace, in verse 6, and if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. The Alexandrian versions, the ESV, NIV, it stops right there. Verse 8 goes on to verse 7. But the Textus Receptus continues. It continues. He says this. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, works is no longer work. Work is no longer work. And this is a huge warning for Arminianists. People say, oh, you know, you, you don't believe in Calvinism. You must be an Arminianist. No, I, I'm just the guy that reads his Bible. That's it. Nothing fancy. But this last part of verse 6 is a huge warning for the Arminianists who tend to have a works-based salvation. This is a huge warning for Armenianists or anybody who has a works-based salvation. Now, we're not saved by works, but make the distinction between works and obedience. Make that distinction. It's very important for your walk with the Lord. And so this is kind of like a long look at the history of the early church and how we have these translations. But I want you to have this understanding because sometimes like I'll talk with a Calvinist or I'll talk with uh, somebody who's reformed into reformed theory and they'll make these arguments and, you know, I get what they're saying, but then I also ask them, Hey, what Bible, what Bible version do you have? And the majority of times, probably 95% of the time, they say, I have an ESV. I, I, I read out of the ESV. And then it's almost like sorrow in my heart because they have a limited text. It's not, it does not, it, it aligns less than the Textus Receptus to the original manuscripts. 
And so if you have an ESV, ESV Bible, I'm not trying to say that the Lord can't speak to you, but it's there's partialities to that. Understand that. Even NIV, there's partialities to that. And New Living Translation, there's partialities. You know, and so message, I would say stay away from the message because there's no translation at all. It's just written by a guy. You know, look at the message. You know, it says the message by, and then it has the guy's name. I forgot his name, but it's just the guy who took it upon himself to say, you know what, I'm going to write a Bible. So uh, don't even, you know, stay away from the message. And so I want to say that because sometimes, you know, these people, Calvinist reform theory, they, they stick hardcore on the ESV. That's what I call, I refer to it as the Calvinist Bible. But it's partial. It deviates from the original manuscripts of Greek, Aramaic, and uh, Hebrew. But I have to stress, I'm not a King James only person. Because don't forget that Numbers 3 uses Septuagint math. You see? And so let's continue on in verse 7. What then? So you, what you see in verse 6, wait a second, it's no longer grace. It's no longer work. What then? Just like Paul says, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks. Wait a second. Remember chapter 10, verse 3. Speaking about Israel. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. That's hupotasso. They have not hupotasso, which is to submit oneself. It's a choice. It's a choice. And going back to verse 7 in chapter 11, Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. And this blinded, this word for blinded in the Greek is to become callous and hard. That's what happens in a heart. That's why you remember when we were talking about the uh, uh, walking in, in the, uh, the way of righteousness or walking according to the flesh. And I said, if you walk according to the flesh, every time you make the decision to go left, you know, likening it to go walking to the flesh. Every time you make the decision to do that, your heart becomes harder and harder and harder and harder. That's not a good situation to be in. If that's you, repent. Get back on the right track. Because your heart can get harder and harder. It's the de deceitfulness of sin. That's how Judas fell. By transgression, he fell. Read Acts chapter 1. But the elect, he says, have obtained it. And the rest were blinded. It's to become calloused and hard. You see, this word for uh, uh, election, it's ekloge, uh, uh, and it's divinely selected or chosen. That's the elect. And you see this in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And these are very, very beautiful moments that are based in obedience. Obedience. Remember Jesus Christ, he says, if you, if you love me, obey my commandments. You see, obedience. Very important to understand. That's why uh, uh, James, faith without works is dead. And he equates to, he goes back to Genesis and mentions Abraham. Then you read the account of Abraham. And what is it? You see the call of God. You see Abraham speak. Here I am, Lord. And then the Lord gives him instructions. 
And Abraham does according to what the Lord said. Abraham, Noah, all these beautiful people, they do in accordance with what the Lord says. Obedience. That's what James is writing about, faith without works. That's why you hear me equate faith and works to belief and obedience. He says this in verse 8, just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, translates as slumber. God has given it to them. Eyes that they should not see or take heed, and ears that they should not hear or understand to this very day. Now you read this. If you happen to be Reformed theory leaning or Calvinistic, they say, you see, you see, God has mercy on whom he has mercy. You see, yes, it's very true that God has mercy on whom he has mercy. Just like we read, you know, in chapter 9, verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. But don't forget that God's mercy is conditional. Read Exodus chapter 20, verse 6. It's to those who love me and keep my commandments. Again, obedience. And obedience is a choice. You say, wait a second. It says here in chapter 11, verse 8, God has given them a spirit of stupor. Yes, he has a spirit of slumber. Yes, it's biblically true. But why? Remember, I always say God is reactionary. So that begs the question, why did this happen? Let's turn to Isaiah 29 really quick. Isaiah 29. Why has God given them a spirit of stupor? And this is what Paul references here. And so we see in Isaiah 29, uh, verse, uh, um, well, verse 10 is where he said, where, what Paul was referencing, the Lord has poured out, poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep or the spirit of stupor or slumber. That's what Paul was referencing in Romans 11. So why does this happen? Well, if you look at verse 13, therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near, draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me. Whoa. You see? Their hearts weren't even in it. It's lip service unto the Lord. Christianese, you hear me mention Christianese? Speaking Christianese is a piece of cake. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Piece of cake. Lift your hands up and worship. Piece of cake. But where is my heart? Where is your heart? And the Lord sees the heart. See, verse 13, they draw near with their mouth. They honor me with their lips. But what about their hearts? What about my heart and your heart? And, they fear toward, and their fear toward, toward me is taught by the commandment of men. Notice, it's not the commandment of God. It's taught by the commandment of men. Therefore, in verse 14, I will do, I will, therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among the people. Now, you have a lot of so-called smart people, scholars, theologians of today, which embrace and teach replacement theology. That is garbage. Replacement theology is unbiblical. Why? 
because God is doing a mighty work with Israel. Replacement theology is garbage. I don't care what, you know, what famous pastors, famous teachers have to say who belong to these very well-known coalitions. To those who have ears. I could care less what these very famous, well-known and well-liked coalitions have to say because they teach replacement theology. It's unbiblical that God is done with Israel. Replacement theology, it's kind of like, you know, it's the, the layman's term for supersessionism. Replacement theology that God is done with Israel. And he's, his promises has moved away from Israel and have come to the church. They're for Christians. That's why you get the uh, uh, BDS movement inside the church. Christians who deny Israel. Christians who want to divest and boycott and sanction Israel. That's BDS, boycott, uh, 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 divest, and sanction. Liberals. Very dangerous. Doctrinally speaking. They don't mind, you know, oh yeah, we want to align with, you know, we want to vote for, you know, this guy. We want to vote for this person. Why? Based on their BDS movement. We don't like Israel. We want to uh, boycott, divest, and sanction Israel because in accordance with the replacement theology, God is done with Israel. Who cares about Israel? You see? It's poisonous. It's poisonous doctrine. God is not done with Israel. Such teachers need to repent. Such teaching will lead you to hell because it's false doctrine. It's not right. And a lot of very famous, well-liked teachers proclaim such things who also happen to have very well-known and liked coalitions. And they make children's books based on these coalitions. You know what I say? Burn it. Garbage. Remember, God is reactionary. He's doing a work. He's not done with Israel. He says in verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people. So look at verse 22. Verse 22, Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Remember, the seed goes through Abraham. And then Isaac and then Jacob. It's not just the seed of Abraham and all his kids. No. No, I don't care what Reformed theology says. I don't care what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. You say, why are you throwing Reformed theology in here? Well, look at the Catechism. Look at the Council of Dort. They just say, read the Catechisms. It just goes right through all the seed of Abraham. No, it's not all the seed of Abraham. It's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, biblically speaking. Remember our study in Romans 9? He says in verse 22, Jacob shall, sh shall not now be ashamed, nor shall his face now grow pale. But when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will hallow my name and hallow the Holy One of Jacob and fear the God of Israel. These 
also who erred in spirit will come will come to understanding and those who complained will learn doctrine notice will will come to an understanding will learn doctrine you know what that means god is not done with israel so why in the world do these so-called replacement theologians why do they get away with what they teach what they espouse from pulpits very well liked very well publicized coalitions very well distributed children's books based in these false doctrines that emanate from these coalitions poison verse 24 will come to understanding will learn doctrine all these wills will come to pass god is not done with israel i don't care what man says i read the bible replacement theology is poison it is antichrist let's go back to romans 11 Let's go back to Romans 11. So, you know, if, if you, like, just several minutes ago, I was giving this very kind of extended explanation of Bible versions. Because when you're in the, of the Alexandrian text, you miss out on a lot, quite a bit, when you're in the NIV, NLT, and ESV Alexandrian texts, which is 1800s, which, you know, the closer you get to today, it's more liberalized. You have to go further back in history. You get to get as close as possible to the original text. If you want to get like super close, you have to learn Hebrew. You have to learn Aramaic. You have to learn Greek. If you want to get as close as possible. And there are scholars who do that. Scholars who I admire. And I listen to It's beautiful when they read from the Greek. You know, sometimes they'll read a text and it'll take them a while. And then they start to explain. I love it when that happens because you have your Bible open and you're like, whoa. You know, it just like, it, it'll blow you away. But that's why I say I'm more of a Textus Receptus kind of guy. It's not without, it's not without warrant. You know why? Because the replacement theologians, so-called theologians, they get away with murder. Because they're able to teach this replacement theology because they have Alexandrian based text and the students they are they think they're understanding the original text but they're not because based on their translation they don't have the full text and that's why these people get away with murder because they can espouse these things from the pulpit somebody could look the Berean could look down at the text and be like, okay, yeah, I, I get that. But when you have these omissions, you miss out on a lot. Now, when you have like, you know, very copyright, like very uh, late copyright dates, and it makes, you know, it diminishes the authority of Christ. Changes he to she. References to the Lord to, you know, not even the Lord. It omits the word of God. It omits the name of God. Those aren't good at all. It's poison. It's all in accordance with the Antichrist spirit. Don't forget, the further distance you get away from the original manuscripts, the closer you get to the last days. Don't forget, you know, 
the the close the, the further you get from the original manuscripts, you get a more liberalized, you get a more homogenized version, more homogenized text, relevant for those time periods. But you're also getting closer to the Antichrist, the last days, the events of the last days. Bibles have to be watered down because it's all prophetic, the great falling away. Not just Bibles have to be watered down. Christians have to be watered down. The church has to be watered down. The church has to be um, weakened. And don't forget the restrainer. He who now restrains will be taken out of the way. What does that say? Who are the virgins with plenty of oil for their lamps? Just as the word of God teaches us. So you see here in verse in verse eight, you see oh, God has given a spirit of stupor or slumber. And you know, going back to Romans 11 in Romans 11, verse eight. Yes, God has given a spirit, a spirit of stupor. But is it without warrant? Is it just, you know, play, OK, boom, you got a spirit of stupor. No. Remember, God is reactionary. Why did that happen? Well, we just read in Isaiah 29, verse 13, their hearts, they have removed their hearts far from me. Verse 9 in Romans 11, and David says, let their table become a snare, a trap, a stumbling block, and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back and bow down their back always. You see, and you read this and it's like, whoa, you know, in accordance with certain theories, uh, reformed, <laughs> Calvinistic, you read this, you're like, wow, you see, God is making this up. God is doing this, you know, you know, Jacob, I've loved and Esau, I have hated. You see, God is doing this. God is sovereign. You see what he's doing? Yes, God is sovereign, but God is reactionary. And it is true in accordance with chapter nine, verse 13, Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I have hated. But you read Hebrews 12, verse 16, and you understand that Esau was a godless fornicator. You see, Esau made his choice. Esau's heart was turned away from the Lord, was far from him. And so God responded. God reacted. Remember, mercy is conditional in accordance with the word of God. What is the condition? To those who love me and obey my commandments. Obedience. Just like Jesus Christ said, the fulfillment of the law, if you love me, obey my commandments. If you love me, follow me. You see? That's why I say Romans 7, 8, 9, 10. It's kind of like white water rapids. Because if you read chapter 9 alone and you read from Alexandrian text, it can be dangerous. Especially if you have a teacher that's replacement theology teacher, especially if you have a teacher that's into this certain well-known and well-liked coalition. They call it godly. But it's dangerous. It's like whitewater rapids. You can go whitewater rafting and have immense fun. Tremendous amounts of fun. Laughter and oh, it's so much fun. But 
it can also be dangerous. You see, you have to know what you're doing. Let's go back to Romans. So you read Romans 11. He says in verse 10, let their eyes be darkened so they do not see and bow down their back always. So you read this, you're like, wait a second. So which direction do I go? Do I lean Calvinistic or Reformed? Or do I lean this other direction? Well, when you read the entirety of Psalm 69, what uh, 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 Paul is referencing toward the end in verse 35, says God will save Zion and build Judah. You see, God is not done with Israel. Replacement theology, replacement theory, it's garbage. It's poison. All in accordance with the spirit of Antichrist. It's against Israel. And the fulfillment of the spirit of Antichrist, the Antichrist himself, will attack Israel and kill Jews. And when God protects the Jews, he'll come against the Christians and start killing Christians. And prophetically speaking, the Antichrist will prevail against the saints. Great tribulation. As prophesied, it all fits perfectly. It all aligns perfectly. And so, let's look at verse 11. In verse 11, <clears throat> I say then, have they stumbled that they should have they stumbled that they should fall? It's like did God set them up for a fall? No way. He says, certainly not, exclamation point. But through their fall, which translates as trespass, also translates as transgress, also translates as side slip. Do you remember when we started our study in Leviticus and we had a little side study about trespassing and how I equated a trespass to a sidestep or a side slip? That's where we get this from. That's where we get this teaching from. Sidestep. So you're on the narrow path. You're walking on the narrow path. Praise be to the Lord. Now, when you're walking on the narrow path, stay right smack dab in the middle of the narrow path. There's going to be times where you do a little sidestep. You know, one little sidestep. And you're going to be okay, but take that with a grain of salt. Because my desire for you, for me, for all who believe is to be right in the middle of the narrow path. Because once you take a little sidestep left, you're closer to the edge. My, you know, you, you take a sidestep left, and when you realize you've taken a sidestep left, you repent and you get take a sidestep right. You don't stay where you are on the left. You take another sidestep right to align yourself right smack dab in the middle of the narrow path. The problem happens when people transgress and transgress and transgress and transgress and transgress and transgress, or I'll put it another way. Right smack dab in the middle of the narrow path, praise be to the Lord. And then all of a sudden, sidestep left, sidestep left, sidestep left, 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 fall. 
You take a side step left. Oh, God is gracious. God will forgive me. It's okay if I do this crack. And instead of repenting and taking a side step right and getting where you need to be on the narrow path. Oh, God will forgive me. I'll do this crack. A side step left. Maybe two side steps, three side steps. I'm under grace. You know what? All my friends are visiting. They're from Chiapas, Mexico. And they happen to be, they happen to get the, the finest crack from Chiapas, Mexico. So I'm going to do crack again. A couple more side steps left. Oh, they want to go out and go to the strip club. So yeah, let's go. Let's go have a good time. We've got church tomorrow, but yeah, I'll go to the late service. No big deal. More side steps left. The whole time, the heart is getting harder and harder and harder and harder. And then finally, boom, the fall. No longer under grace. You're now under the law. And then the law is death. But under the law, remember the law is a schoolmaster, a tutor to bring us back. You know, for that person that's in that situation to bring that person back into grace. Now, when that person, if that person comes back into grace, that person will have to reap what he has sown, reap what she has sown, but they're now under grace. They're going to have a whole bunch of mess in their life, but they're not going to burn in hell. They're safe. Now, for the, the, the law, which is a schoolmaster, a tutor to bring us back to Christ, what happens when that person Sidestep, 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 fall. And then ignores the tutor, ignores the schoolmaster, does not heed the law. The ears become hard, the heart becomes hard. Judgment. That's Romans 1 type of, you know, scenarios where God's wrath befalls individuals. Listen to our study in Romans 1. That's what happens. That's the danger of trespass and transgress and transgress and to side slip is how it translates. But in verse 11 here says, have they stumbled that they should fall? Question mark. Certainly not exclamation point, but through their fall to provoke them to jealousy. You see this provoke them to jealousy translates as to stimulate to emulation, just to emulate, to provoke them to jealousy. And I like to explain this with two kids, you know, take, for example, say two kids, you know, and it's like one kid's being a little rough and you're like, Hey, cut it out. Then he turns into a little twerp and you're like, Hey, cut it out. And then he just turns like straight up rambunctious. And you say, okay, go stand over in the corner. And the kid stands in the corner, you know, is all by himself. And then you go to kid number two and you play nicely with that, you know, kid number two, you play nicely with that person. And the little kids are like, wow, cool, we got this toy. Yeah, everything's, everything's nice. But then that other ruffian kid, he's going to turn around and kind of be sad a little bit. And then you look at him, you say, okay, are you done being a little twerp? And he says, yeah, you know, he nods his head, yeah, I'm done. Okay, are you sure you're done? He nods his head, yeah. Okay, come on, let's play. Come on, join us, you know. Here, let's play with whatever. It's kind of like a little example because you've stimulated to emulation for that ruffian kid to emulate this other kid who's more gentle. And that's this concept. I'm not saying that Israel is ruffian. I'm not saying like that. But that's the concept. 
through their fall to provoke them to jealousy or to stimulate to emulation. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. So it's like for the Gentiles, we're like, you know, okay, you know, here's a little toy. In that example, I'm not saying salvation is a toy. I'm just in that, in that example. And so here we are, you know, we start playing with the toy. Okay, cool. Then you got the little roughing kid. Okay, I'm done being a little, a little uh, a twerp. So I'm going to come and, you know, be nice, play nice. And here it is. Nice, you know, two kids playing nicely. And that's just an example of two kids playing. But a very similar concept between Jew and Gentile. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, in verse 12, if their fall or trespass, transgress, or sideslip, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? What does that say of replacement theology? What does that say to the famous so-called pastors? I call them wolves. What does that say of these so-called learned men who are anti-Israel, who are pro-BDS, who are pro-politician who is pro-BDS? All in accordance to the spirit of Antichrist, who is anti-Israel. He hates the Jews. And this Antichrist spirit, which is anti-Israel, it's going a step further these days, which is anti-Zion. It's the last days. The Antichrist spirit is alive and well and at work. Ultimately, for the culmination of the events of the last days. And it's building up to that point, even to this very day. Even in this very day. All leading up. Me personally, I believe we're a last days generation. How much more their fullness? How can somebody say God is done with Israel? Oh, God is done with Israel. But so his focus now is now on the church. He's done. It's the Antichrist spirit. I could say to these people, hey, you need to study your Bible. But they say, oh, I just, uh, you know, I, I have the Alexandrian Bible. I, I read out of the ESV. Well, there's your problem. You need to get as close as possible as you can to the original manuscripts. Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. That's why I say I'm a Textus Receptus kind of guy. Oh, you're an Arminianist. No, I just read my Bible. That's it. Verse 13, for I speak to you Gentiles. Remember, the church in Rome is comprised of both Jew and Gentile. He says, for I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle, of the, uh, an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. This translates as I magnify and glorify my service as a teacher. Whoa. This is Paul speaking now. I magnify and glorify my service as a teacher. Whoa. You could look at that and be like, whoa, is that price? If somebody said that today, if a teacher said that today, I magnify and glorify my service as a teacher, everybody would throw stones at such a person. He's so prideful. He's so prideful. He's a legalist. He thinks he's special. But no, remember, this is Paul speaking now. Paul's not like the average bear. I specifically mentioned that in our study in the book of Romans, and I did it repetitively over and over and over and over. Paul is a different animal. 
He's not like the average bear. There is something different about this particular fellow. And I said that a lot. You might have been gotten tired of me saying that. But I said it for a reason. Because when he says stuff like this in his letters, when he says, I magnify and glorify my service as a teacher, remember, he's not like the average bear. He's not saying this pridefully. Why does he magnify and glorify his service as a teacher? He says this in verse 14, If by any means I may provoke to jealousy, which is to stimulate to emulation, those who are my flesh and save some of them. That's his purpose. It's not, oh, I magnify and glorify my service as a teacher so that here you can give me more money. No way. That's wickedness. Far be that from Paul. Oh, so that I can get more likes on social media. Oh, that you can like me. That I can be your best friend. No way. Remember in Paul's prison letters when he wrote to young Pastor Timothy, he said, everybody has left me. That's what Paul said. No one is with me. Except Luke. A couple other guys. Beautiful, beautiful Paul. All alone. A few are with him. Just like Elijah. Even in this day and age, who knows the number? But I know it's a few. It's not the multitude. Where are the people who have not bowed the knee to Baal? In accordance to the remnant of grace. Paul's not prideful at all. His purpose for saying this, I magnify and glorify my service as a teacher at the end of verse 13, the translation, the Greek translation, is to save Israel. Those who are my flesh and save some of them, he says in verse 14. If by any means I may provoke them to jealousy. You see? For if they're being cast away, which translates as rejected, if they're being cast away is reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Remember in verse 12, their fullness. In verse 15 here, life. Life from the dead. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Behold the tree of Israel. There's no such thing as replacement theology in the Bible. There is replacement theology in accordance with the doctrine of men, the teaching of fallen man, the teaching of wolf, the teaching of snake, the teaching of the Antichrist spirit. Biblically, as a Berean, there is no replacement theology. God is not done with Israel. You see, it's holy. The first fruit is holy. The lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. You say, wait a second. Israel is holy. God is not done. God is doing a work. You know, you ever watch like somebody paint? You know, you, you see, I forgot the guy's name, but there's the guy with the big hair and he paints. You know, he's got the big curly hair, kind of an old guy. I don't know if he's alive still, but he's an old guy. And he has this canvas. Like, oh, look, he's drawing a tree. 
And he's like, he starts doing this thing. What is that? Oh, it's a tree. That's not a tree. You know, at, at the end, it's like it turns out to be like, yeah, I don't know, like a cliffside, you know, or a mountainside or a blade of grass, you know. It's like, wait, he, God is the potter. Let him do his work. He's not done. You and me, we're the clay. He's like, oh, Israel's holy. Well, what about this? What we're the clay, my friend. We're the clay. Let God do his work. Let God do his work in accordance with this word. It will come to pass. You ever hear, you see like the, like, uh, I mean, I don't, you know, I have a little artsy side. There were times when I was in school, you know, long, many moons ago, many millennia ago, not millennia, but you know, many moons ago. I would paint and people would offer to buy my paintings. But I remember while I was painting, yeah, these, these people come up and they, oh, what are you doing? Like, can I work here? You're like, you know, and then I started having my headphones. You know, the old school Walkman, you know, big old headphones. I, I don't want to talk to anybody. I just, let me paint, you know. Oh, what is that? What are you doing here? What is this? What? Leave me alone. Can I just paint, please? You know, and I say that because we're the clay. Let God do his work. And so look what happens here in verse 17. And if some of the branches were broken off and you, remember, he says in verse 13, for I speak to you Gentiles. <laughs> so he says, if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive tree, Gentiles, were grafted in among them. Now, grafting, if you ever see like a, a, a rose bush. Uh, red roses, beautiful, beautiful red roses, a bush of, you know, red. And then right next to it is a beautiful, beautiful rose bush, except white roses. Now you go to the white, and it takes skill. You go to the white rose bush and you cut the, uh, 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 a flower, you cut a rose, one of the stems of the rose, you cut it in a certain fashion. You cut it in a certain fashion, you have to do it delicately. And then you go to the red bush and you cut it to an, the same fashion, but in the opposite, kind of like a puzzle piece. You're kind of like cutting it like a puzzle and you cut the other one like a puzzle and you take the white rose and you put it on the the stem of the red rose bush and then and you tape it. And, you, you know, you have to put some kind of like some kind of special glue that, you know, has nutrients and you tape it up. And then all of a sudden, if it takes... What happens inside the little veins or whatever's inside the thing? I'm not a scientist, but all the veins or whatever, it connects. It takes. It sticks. So now you have this stem of a red rose bush that is now grafted to the white stem with the white, to the stem of the white rose. And the white rose can grow. So now you have a bush of red roses with a white rose. And you do that multiple times. And if it all takes, you can have, it's, it's beautiful because you have like a red rose bush, but then you have like little specks of white in there because these white roses have been grafted in. And that's what the Lord is speaking here. That's what the Lord is teaching us. If some of the branches were broken off, he says in verse 17, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them, not instead of them, he says, and with them. What does that say to the replacement so-called theologians? The text says, with them. 
not instead of them. He says, you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree or richness of the olive tree is how it translates. Remember, verse 12 indicates the fullness. So what do we do as Gentiles since in verse 13, he speaks to us Gentiles? Verse 18, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. What does that say to the so-called replacement theologian? What does that say of supersessionism? It's not you or me that supports the root. It's not the church that supports the root. You know, picture if we're a bunch of branches. We're on a tree. I'm a branch. You're a branch. You know, there's a branch there, a branch there. And we're all start talking amongst ourselves. Oh, I hate Israel. Oh, I hate, you know, I'm pro BDS. Let's, you know, uh, boycott, divest and, and uh, 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 sanction Israel. Oh, yeah, I'm so anti-Israel. Yeah, let's, let's arm the Iranians. Let's arm Iran, you know, so they can have their nuclear material and build their nuclear bombs. Nuclear, all in, you read Ezekiel 38, all these things are happening. Oh, yeah, I'm pro this, I'm pro that, I'm anti-Israel. You know what we're doing as branches? We're, we're cutting off our support. That's like saying, oh, I'm anti-root, the very root that brings me sustenance, nutrients. Now, I'm not speaking literally, I'm speaking very supernaturally. Because these things will come to pass. God is not done with Israel. The BDS movement, I understand it in the world because it's the spirit of Antichrist. But in the church, you know what that tells me? That the spirit of Antichrist has entered the church. Has entered the church. It's inside the camp. Do not be deceived. Oh, but this wise teacher tells me this. He speaks this. He says this. He says that. I don't care. Who is he? He's teaching this. He's espousing these things. That's danger. That's a wolf. That's a snake. Oh, but he's at this beautiful church in a beautiful pulpit. I don't care. Have you not read judgment comes first in the house of God? Have you not read? Oh, but... I have his children's books. I have this, this, you know, this so-called coalition and their children's books. Burn them. I don't care. What, what, what is it that they have to say? How does that even compare with the word of God? It doesn't. And if there is evidence of the Antichrist spirit, you want to teach that to your kids? You want to fall under these teachings? You want to submit yourself to these teachings? It's the Antichrist spirit. Oh, but it is written. It's in the Bible. I read uh, Romans 9. Romans 9 says this. Romans 9 says this. Okay, but don't forget. Romans 10. Romans 11. The general theme of Romans 7 through 11. 
It's like telling a person you've been whitewater rafting and you've sunk. You don't even know it, but you've sunk. That's what I love so much about chapter 11. The culmination of all things and it all hinges on belief. Remember I said that in chapter 8, 9? Everything hinges on belief. And it's true. Why? Because it's written. So remember, in verse 13, I speak to you Gentiles. I'm a Gentile, just so you know. In verse 18, you did not support the root, but the root supports you. Now, turn with me really quick to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw, this is Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. I saw the Lord sitting sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. There's a worship song that we sing. You know, the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. You know that song? A beautiful, beautiful song. Based on, you know, scripture. In verse 2, above it stood seraphim. This all aligns with Revelation 4. The, uh, Revelation 4, they do not rest day or night. It, they're constantly. All these things align scripturally. Roman, uh, Revelation 4. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, Adonai. The Lord of hosts, Adonai. You know, he says, holy, holy, holy. But when you read Revelation 4 in the original, he says it nine times. This, this series of words, nine times. Holy, holy, holy. That's one time. Holy, holy, holy. That's two times. Holy, holy, holy. Three times. You see, we live in a generation that has forgotten no idea this concept of holiness. How is holiness learned and understood? It emanates from the Word of God. Remember, how can they, how can they call on the name of the Lord? How can they call on the name of the Lord in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent messengers? Apostello, set apart and sent away. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But in Isaiah 6, in Isaiah 6, something happens. Sorry for that, that. I have my phone here and I said something and it acted up. So I apologize for that. In verse 2, in, in Isaiah 6, verse 2, above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So you read this. Now we look at verse 11. All these promises that the Lord, I mean, we're not going to read the entirety of Isaiah 6, but it culminates in, in verse 11 of the same chapter, chapter 6, Isaiah. Verse 11, then I said, this is Isaiah, Lord, how long, question mark, how long, these promises that the Lord has, how long, Lord? And he answered, 
And now judgment is described and is described as events of the last days, which aligns perfectly with other prophecies in Zechariah, what Brother Peter writes about, what Paul writes about, what John writes about in Revelation. And he says this, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are without man. The land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away and has for and, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth will be in it and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump, whose stump remains when it is cut down. Remember Romans 11 verse 15? That they're being cast away and rejected, or the rejection. We just read that in Romans 11, verse 15. But then he says this. So the holy seed shall be its stump. You see? The church is grafted in. The root is holy. The stump is holy. And the tree is holy. Aligns perfectly what we read in Romans 11, verse 15 through 18. Perfectly. You see, God is not done with Israel. Replacement theology? Garbage. Replacement theologian? Garbage. Antichrist spirit is the last days. Let's go back to Romans 11. You will say that in verse 19, Romans 11, verse 19, you will say then branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. So this, this statement, when he says, you will say then branches were broken off that I might be grafted in this statement right here, it doesn't go against scripture. It aligns with scripture, but I love how Paul builds on it. He says, well said. You're right. Branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Nothing wrong with that statement. It's not to say branches were broken off so that I might replace the root or replace the stump. No. That I might be grafted in. And he says in verse 20, well said. But why? Paul explains why. Because of unbelief. You remember how I always say everything hinges on belief? Everything hinges on belief. And I would even preface our studies pointing to Romans 11. Because I wanted you to understand as we went through the white waters, I don't want you to fall off. I don't want to lose you. We're going to go through the white waters and we're going to have loads of fun. And there's safety in the full counsel of the word of God. He says, because of unbelief, they were broken off. Remember in Isaiah 6, the tree was cut down. But there remains a stump. God is not done with Israel. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Remember the law of faith. We covered that in Romans 3. Not the law of the Old Testament, not the letter of the law, but the fulfillment of the law, which is Jesus Christ. 
and the law of faith. Romans 3. Everything fits perfectly. Do not be haughty. Translate says, do not be arrogant. But fear. You see? But fear. Which is to have reverence. But it goes further. It's to have reverence, to be in awe, and also to be frightened. You see? The replacement so-called theologians, they are very, very poor examples. Because they don't have this awe of the stump. They're not frightened for their own sake. You see? You see how this doctrine, how the dangers of Romans, not the dangers, but you see how Romans 9 can easily lead to dangerous doctrines? That's why when we were in Romans 9, we touched on certain things because I don't want you to fall off the boat. And even explaining the difference between uh, Textus Receptus and uh, Alexandria. You might be wondering, like in our early, you know, when we were reading that, going through all these things, we're reading the text, and I stopped and I said, most Bibles, they start, actually, most Bibles, NIV, NLT, ESV, they stop right here. We're reading the text, they're stopping right here. And then I kind of go off and explain, you know, the text. Original manuscripts, pages. Hey, we got a letter from Paul. We got a letter from Peter. And they put it together. And how everything, you know, the, the Erasmus, the works of Erasmus, bringing all these manuscripts together. And then all of a sudden they did the same. The King James bankrolled and did the same with the Aramaic, the Hebrew, and you know, uh, uh, the Greek to have the authorized version. Because it's close to the manuscripts. As close as possible without, without knowing uh, Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic. Now, I'm not a King James only person because don't forget, Tyndale had his Bible. You know, Tyndale had his Bible. And also, I have to stress this. Numbers 3 uses Septuagint math. Never forget Septuagint math. Because the equation in Numbers 3 fits perfectly based on Septuagint math. And even there are certain errors with the King James and New King James. Certain errors. And I'll make mention of those. I've already mentioned those sometimes. I was like, I, I wish the translators would have put it like this. Or the fact that it's put like this doesn't really do it justice. That's based on the Greek. Sometimes it's based on the Hebrew. And Paul says, do not be haughty, do not be arrogant, but fear. Now, replacement theologians, so-called theologians, they're very haughty. They're very arrogant. Listen to them speak BDS against Israel. Boycott, divestment, and uh, sanction. The liberalization that has come inside the church you go inside a liberal church, you know, Episcopal church, ask them, what Bible do you read? It's probably, you know, something from 1950. They don't read ancient text. The further away you get from the original manuscripts, the closer you get to the last days. And the last days church, remember three camps, the last days church 
is false, apostate, or true. That's the last day's church. You choose. And so let's continue. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Well, I don't know about you, but I read this and it terrifies me. It scares me. If God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Remember, this is a letter to the church. The church in Rome made it comprised of both Jew and Gentile. And even in verse 13, he says, for I speak to you Gentiles. And I'm a Gentile. You know what that tells me? Whoa, I, I you know, I better heed this. I better heed this because, whoa, Paul, beautiful, beautiful brother Paul is saying, if he did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. I read that like, whoa. Wow, you know, there's that saying, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. I mean, it was a saying when I was growing up. Check yourself. Not in accordance with, you know, this certain coalition. This certain theologian from this certain coalition. And all that implies. But the word of God. That's our measurement. We check ourselves with the word of God. Just like we do on communion Sundays. Judge ourselves. Oh, I don't like to judge. Well, you better get used to it. You know, not, to, not in condemnation, not in the spirit of condemnation. But you have to measure yourself. Make sure you're right. Make sure that you're right with God. Not to make sure you're right in the sense of, you know, correct, like in an argument sense. But make sure you're right with the Lord. Make sure you're at peace with the Lord. You know, sometimes, you know, if you watch TBN, Tricking Believers Nightly, you put down your Bible and you start watching TBN. Instead of, you know, an hour in the Word, you're watching an hour, the hour of power, you know, or the hour of whatever. And then you listen to a guy from Northern California. Oh, wow, I really like this guy. And you put down your Bible and you're like, wow, I really like this guy. What a nice orator. And you know what they do in their fellowships? They put little glitter bags on the ceiling. They put little glitter bags on the ceiling. And then while somebody's teaching, so-called teaching, while somebody is speaking at the pulpit, they'll un unleash the, they'll like untie these bags and all this glitter will fall down. And the person at the stage, the person speaking will say, look, the Holy Spirit is coming down. It's glitter. The Holy Spirit is coming down. It's straight up glitter. Where are the Bereans? Remember, the last day's church is either false, apostate, or true. You choose where you want to camp. You choose your campsite. And so, look what happens here. In um, verse 22, Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, sever severity. But toward you, goodness. Which translates as gentle. Uh, 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 gentle. Um, but toward you, goodness. If. There's that word of conditionality. 
if you continue, which translates as to remain and abide. You hear me mention that all the time. Abide in Christ, abide in Christ, abide in Christ. And I even go further. Abide in Christ, no period. Abide in Christ and Christ in you, as he says. And that's the same word here, continue. If you continue, if you remain and abide in Christ, or it says here, in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Whoa, what does that say of once saved, always saved? You know, oh, I believed when I was 10 years old, so now I'm 30 years old, I'm a crackhead, I'm a meth, I got meth mouth, and I'm good to go, I'm still saved. No way. You need to repent. Get back on the narrow path. That's why men get away with crazy stuff with their in their marriages. Oh yeah, replacement theology. Once saved, always saved. Oh yeah, good to go. I can do this pornography. I can do go to the strip clubs. I can beat on my wife. I can cheat on my wife. No way. Do not be deceived. He says otherwise you will also be cut off. Remember, a letter to the church of both Jew and Gentile. He even says in verse 13, for I speak to you Gentiles. And he says, otherwise, in verse 22, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not, do not continue in unbelief. You know what this says? They believe again. Because they're not continuing in unbelief. They believe again will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Everything hinges on belief. Remember, belief can be temporal, based on Luke 8, verse 13. The seed. Belief can be a temporal thing. And sometimes I say that, and people are like, whoa, what do you mean? Belief can be temporal? Yeah, it says here. Luke chapter 8, verse 13. Then they read it. <gasps> what? I never knew that. I thought once saved, always saved. Well, who's your teacher? Uh, this guy, this certain theologian from this certain coalition. Well, he's wrong. Oh, but look, he's got all these uh, friends on social media. That's nice. He's wrong still. Oh, but look, he's very famous. This publication, all these children's books, these children's learning material from this certain coalition. That's nice. What does the Bible say? You choose. You make a choice. I'm just the messenger. People get freaked out. Oh, okay. Belief. Don't forget that belief can be temporal. But, you know, flip the coin a little bit. Flip the coin. Not a little bit. A lot of it. Flip the coin to the other side. If belief can be temporal, temporal so can unbelief. Unbelief can be a temporal thing. Look what he says here in verse 23. They also, if they do not continue in unbelief, so they believe again, they'll be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Now, I'm going to stress my opinion here. This I specifically state, this is my opinion. In my opinion, it is better to fall because of sin than it is to fall because of false doctrine. Both are bad. Don't get me wrong. Both are bad. But in my opinion, it is better to fall because of sin than to fall because of false doctrine. Why? Because if you fall because of sin or a person who falls because of sin, it is much easier for that individual, for that soul 
to come back to Christ because they don't have that baggage of false doctrine. Because sometimes you talk to a Calvinist who has fallen. You talk to a Reformed theory person who has fallen. And they are, I mean, not that otherwise they're not devastated, but these people are straight up contemplating suicide. They are devastated because they say, I'm not of the elect. I have fallen. That means I'm not saved. God has predestined me to hell, so I'm just going to jump off a bridge. I'm just going to bite the bullet, literally. You know, put the barrel in my face and squeeze the trigger. Whoa. That's what false doctrine does. Both are bad, you know. When I say it's better to fall because of sin, don't be like, whoa, is he advocating that I go out and do this? No way. I'm just saying that I, in my opinion, it's better to fall because of sin than it is to fall because of false doctrine. Because when the fall happens, if somebody is in a theory, some people call it theology. I call it a theory because that's all it is. It doesn't, it doesn't rate to be called a theology, in my opinion. You talk to a fallen person who's a Calvinist. You talk to a fallen person who's into Reformed theory. And they want to blow their brains out because there's no hope for them. That's what they say. That's what they think. Why? Because they were taught that. Oh, God predestined me to hell. No. Whoever taught you, taught you incorrectly about the doctrine of predestination. He taught you wrong. Oh, you're mistaken. My pastor's a woman. There you go. Even worse. Oh, but Pastor Jennifer, hey, stop with that nonsense. It's not biblical. A lot, oh, my pastor's a female. She's a great teacher. That's nice. It's unbiblical. It's un- you got to follow the recipe. I mean, one time I, I was at a restaurant and I ordered this dessert and I wanted the dessert so bad. But in the kitchen, they made a mistake. Instead of sugar, they used salt. And so I took my first bite and I was like fiending for this dessert. I like a good dessert every now and then. And I'm fiending for this dessert. It's on my spoon, you know, on my fork. I forgot what a spoon or fork. But it's on my silverware, you know, and I'm like, it's like right my mouth is watering as it's like inches away from my mouth. I put it in my mouth, boom, salt, spit it right out. The recipe. Whoever was the cook didn't follow the recipe. Whoever baked it didn't follow the recipe properly. And so what happened? It tasted like dirt, tasted like garbage. Can't follow the recipe. Oh, but Pastor Lisa tells me this. That's nice. She's not following the recipe. The holy recipe. You see? That's why in my opinion, I have to stress in my opinion. People get mad sometimes when I speak. When I say it's better to fall because of sin than to fall because of false. Like, well, are you, you say I should, it's, it's okay for me to fall? No. In no way, shape, or form. Because if you fall because of sin, it leaves room for hope. But if you fall and you have this backdrop of false doctrine, where's the hope? It kills the hope. People want to blow their brains out. Because I'm not of the elect. I'm predestined to hell. So you know what? Why go on this, you know, this toll? Why go through the toil? Why go through this arduous road? 
There's no hope. I'm predestined to hell. So say goodnight. No way. That is false doctrine. But outside of that false doctrine, there remains hope. Sometimes people say, oh, that person was never a Christian. Oh, he's in a fallen state. She's in a fallen state. That means, therefore, they were never a Christian. What are you talking about? Who taught you that? Oh, the Bible, Romans 9 says this. What? Romans 9 doesn't teach that. Oh, it was Romans 8. What? Not Romans 8. Who's your teacher? This guy. Where did he go to school? Oh, he went to school over here. His teacher was it. He has this certain coalition, famous theologian from this famous coalition. That's nice. Garbage. False doctrine. Spirit of Antichrist. You're going to submit yourself to that? You're going to hupatasso unto that? You see, the last day's church is either false, it is apostate, or it is true. Pick your camp. So, in closing, let's look at verse 24. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, remember, Gentiles without the law. You know, there's there's no order amongst Gentiles. You know, uh, spiritual order. No law. Where there's no law, there's lawlessness. And I'm not advocating the law, but, you know, the fulfillment of the law, he I advocate, Jesus Christ. For if you are cut out of the, wild, of the, the, the olive tree, which is wild by nature... And were grafted contrary to nature. Remember, it's entirely supernatural. I mean, who talks about a water baptism being death? I mean, I know I teach that way. But like carnal people, they don't understand that. It's like, oh, a guy goes in the water, a girl goes in the water, and they're dead? What? You know, these aren't carnally received. It's not received by the natural man, the natural woman. It is supernaturally discerned. That's why he says here, we're grafted in contrary to nature. It's a supernatural event. Into a cultivated olive tree, a better, good, and improved olive tree. How much more will these who are natural branches, Israel, be grafted into their own olive tree? You see, God is not done with Israel. Replacement theology? Garbage. The advocates of replacement theology, I won't say garbage, but the advocates of replacement theology is to say, hey, study the Bible. Read the Bible and understand. Oh, but I, I, I read Alexandrian version. I read the Alexandrian text. Well, that, that's a problem. Oh, but I went to seminary and we teach, we, we learned out of this. Oh, that, that's nice. Let's look at the original manuscripts. Let's look at what the Greek says. Let's look at what the Hebrew says. You see? And it's like, okay, now that we know what the Greek and what the Hebrew says, let's look at the Alexandrian text. Let's look at Textus Receptus. Choose. You see? And so look what happens here in verse 25. 
For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Now, Paul says, I, that's not my desire. I do not desire, brethren. Remember, the church comprised of both Jew and Gentile. Paul says, it's not my desire. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. You know what, Paul, you know what's happening today? Many are ignorant of this mystery. Paul straight up says, I don't desire that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Look at these famous coalitions. Look at these so-called theologians under this coalition. Ignorant of this mystery. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion. Today, many are wise in their own opinion. You see? That blindness in part has happened to Israel. Remember, in, in Isaiah 6, you have the tree that's cut, but there's a stump, and the stump is holy. What happens to this stump? Well, there's going to be grafting. The church, Israel, the stump is holy. The root is holy. Everything aligns. Isaiah 6, Romans 11, everything aligns perfectly, beautifully. Perfect alignment, Old Testament and New Testament. Perfect alignment. You ever put a puzzle piece together and you're so frustrated because they're like little? It's not like the, you know, 100-piece puzzle. Those are easy. It's like 5,000-piece puzzle and it's a little one and it's like, man, these are tiny puzzle pieces. And you get kind of frustrated. Like, man, I want this to fit, but it's not fitting. But eh, I think I'm going to like, you know, make it fit. That's what people do. That's what these so-called theologians do. It doesn't fit. But when you have the full counsel of the Word of God, old and new, and you put it together, you have to make sure it fits. Prophecies, promises, you have to make sure it fits in accordance with the New Covenant teachings. And when it fits, beautiful. Beautiful. Blindness in part, he says in verse 25, has happened to Israel until... The fullness of the Gentiles, very interesting. The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, let's go to Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. The prophet Zechariah. Verse 10. I will pour out. I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the Spirit. Notice the capitalization here. I read out the New King James, but I like these capitalizations. The Spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me, capital M, they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. This Zechariah 12, verse 10, that's the unblinding of Israel in accordance with Romans eleven twenty five. 25. And Brother Paul, in Romans eleven twenty five, 25, also aligns that with the fullness of the Gentiles. Now, this isn't a rapture study. Uh, this isn't a rapture study. But understand that Israel's unblinding coincides with the fullness of the Gentiles. And then you get into Zechariah 14, and you see exactly what happens in Zechariah 14. The alignment of the prophecies of John in Revelation. And it fits perfectly. Perfectly. Let's go back to Romans 11. In closing, 
Verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Israel is no longer blind when this happens. No longer blind. A prophetic event. A prophetic event. You know, you read verse 26 here. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob for this is my covenant with them. Now, when you understand the modern day BDS movement, the boycott, divestment and sanction away from Israel, you look at the liberal agenda and sometimes you have Christians, so-called Christians who are pro BDS. They don't, they want to boycott Israel. Number one, they're under false doctrine. But understand, when I say it's the spirit of Antichrist, people say, well, that's kind of a hardcore statement. That's a, that's a heavy indictment to say it's the Antichrist spirit. Well, don't forget the Antichrist spirit is anti-Israel, anti-Zion, anti-Jew, and anti-Christian. And the fulfillment of the uh, Antichrist spirit culminating is the Antichrist himself. And he will come on the scene. He will come on the world stage. And he will be a man of peace. But it's a fake peace. Read the prophecies. Understand the prophecies. This spirit of Antichrist, which is satanic and demonic, it's highly satanic, doesn't want these things to happen, doesn't want Jesus Christ to come back. Why? Because he wants to drag people to hell with him where he's going. He wants to drag God's creation to hell. You see? Then we take more as a Christian, as Christians. As the church, as saints of the Most High, we take not only a defensive posture, but an offensive posture. Henceforth, the warrior. Henceforth, the fisherman and the fisherwoman. You see? In verse 28, in closing, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Now, this is one of those areas where say, eh, I wish this was translated a little bit different. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. How it's better translate? Concerning the gospel, they are hostile toward you. But concerning election, which is divine selection, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Who are the fathers? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's promises never fail. They will come to pass. God is not done with Israel. The stump is holy. The root is holy. And the last days, the events of the last days will come to pass. The tree. In verse 29, for the gifts and the calling or the invitation of God are irrevocable. You know what this means? There's still an open invitation today. Because this calling, the invitation of God, they're irrevocable. So what does that say to you and to me? The invitation is still open. If you're a non-believer and you're listening, I mean, you've come, you come, I mean, we're, we've been studying for quite a bit. So, you know, I want you to know that God loves you. 
and this calling, this invitation, it's still an open invitation for you today. Repent, my friend, and believe in Jesus Christ because God loves you. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you can be of good cheer. Why? Because this invitation is extended to all. Go be a messenger. Let your feet be beautiful in the name of Jesus Christ. Let the work of your hands be beautiful in the name of Jesus Christ. This invitation, this calling of God, the gifts and the invitation of God are irrevocable. Verse 30, for as you were, past tense, as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. Notice this call is to the Gentiles. This invitation, it has been extended to the Gentiles. Even so, these also have now been disobedient that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. Now you see reciprocal mercy to both Jew and Gentile. Wow. Who could do such a work? Who could do such work? Only the Lord. Only the Lord. Man could not concoct this. Only the man Christ Jesus and the word became flesh. For God has committed them all to disobedience or subjected them all to disobedience. Now, remember, reactionary. It's not just like, boom, you're, you're, you're subjected to disobedience. That's when you get these crazy doctrines where people say, God created sin. God makes you sin. No, he doesn't make you or me as robots. He doesn't make anybody as robots. You and me, we can choose obedience. Non-believers, they can choose to believe. You see, light has come into the world, but people love darkness more than the light. They made their choice. Choose. Remember Joshua, as for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. In verse 32, for God has committed or subjected them all to disobedience, reactionary, that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of wisdom and knowledge, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, exclamation point. That's just so beautiful. Some people have knowledge of the word of God, but don't forget wisdom. A lot of so-called theologians, they have knowledge, but it's partial knowledge. Biblically, 1 Corinthians 13 but then also textually, um, um, Alexandrian, you know, Alexandrian, speaking uh, of the Alexandrian text. Some people have, they think they have a lot, an abundance of knowledge. But if there's no wisdom, you start getting into the liberalization, the homogenization of the word of God. Just as was been happening through the centuries. The liberalization of the word of God. Oh, yeah, you know what? I love God. I love Jesus, but I also hate Israel. I love God. I love Jesus, but you know what? Let, I'm going to vote for this guy who's, you know, pro-BDS. Let's, let's divest from Israel. Let's boycott Israel. So I'm going to vote this guy into office. I like his politics, and I'm a Christian. He's such a nice guy. I'm going to vote for this guy. 
He also likes to arm Iran. Countries that, you know, want to, they say they want to blow up Israel. They want to destroy Israel. Knock her off the face of the earth. Yeah, it's okay that they have nukes. I'm going to vote for this guy who wants to arm them. Give them nuclear weapons. You see? Without understanding the prophecies of Ezekiel 38. Under the influence of Gog and Magog. You see? Even still, all these things will come to pass. Last day's church is either false, apostate, or true. Pick your camp. In closing, verse 33, all oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it and it shall be repaid to him. Ah, how beautiful our Lord is. For of him, and through him, and to him. Notice, of, through, and to. Of him, and through him, and to him are all things. To whom be the glory forever. Amen. That's what Paul says. May the wise virgin, may the wise virgin long for paradise with the bridegroom. We're going to end our study here and Lord willing, pick up in chapter 12 next week. God bless you guys. Love you guys.